Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. What's the first brand you remember making an impact on you? I would say it was probably kind of a toy brand. I remember saving up my own money to buy uh, a product. I, I don't know who the manufacturer was, but it was fashion plates where there was these little like raised um, templates that you put into a frame and you put a piece of paper and rubbed a crayon over it to make your own outfits and stuff. I, I loved kind of creative things like that. So my, my mom used to say that Toys R Us was the saddest store in the world because it made children cry. And uh, so m- maybe that's why they didn't quite make it. They were the saddest store. <laughs> good insight from your mom. Yeah. So that's a good one. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO podcast is Jennifer Davis, chief marketing officer for Learfield the far and away leader in media, technology, and partnerships in college sports. Learfield is the number one provider of multimedia rights, licensing, ticketing, fan-targeted digital advertising, official athletic websites, original content programming, digital signage, social ticketing, and development services to college sports. Wow. If you watch or attend college sports, you are likely immersed in something Learfield has created. Jennifer has been CMO at Learfield since March 2021. Before that, she has had a long string of leadership positions at tech companies, including Amazon Web Services, Honeywell, Laird, and Intel. With degrees from Warner Pacific and Pepperdine, Jennifer is a strong believer in the power of the written word. She has been a blogger for decades, she advocates for writing on the job, and she has just published a book. This is my conversation with marketer, mother, and author, Jennifer Davis. Welcome to the CMO Podcast, Jennifer. I am a huge college sports fan, so I am so looking forward to this chat. I have to ask you, are you a super fan? You know, we uh, lived in Oregon for many years during very good years for the Oregon Ducks. And so uh, our family roots for the Ducks. Um, but I actually attended colleges that didn't have big sports program. So I, I came to it a little later in my life. But what about you? Who do you root for? Well, we have kind of a mixed family. Uh, my son went to Ohio State okay. and he married a Buckeye and Penn State. The, on this, the weekend we're recording, Penn State is playing Ohio State. I met my wife at Penn State in graduate school. She went to UCLA undergraduate and my daughter went to UCLA undergraduate. So yeah, we're all over college sports. All over it, and with some fantastic programs. So that's oh my gosh, yeah. Uh, that's I mean, women's volleyball, swimming, football, basketball, we watch it all. I love it. All right. So, you just published a book this year, Well Made Decisions is the title. So, I want to start our discussion by talking about that. And I want to start with why did you write it? I've written a few books, and that's always an interesting question. Why do you tackle a project like that? Because, as you know, it is not easy. No. No, uh, no, no, no one, no one does it just for the sheer joy. <laughs> no, I, I <laughs> agree with true. that. That is true. So for me, it was something that had kind of been a bucket list item for me for a while. I enjoy writing and research. It's something that uh, has always been a big part of my professional life. And so writing a book on something had been uh, something I'd wanted to do. And then, then we went into a pandemic. And I had friends and colleagues who, you know, got serious about their Peloton or learned how to make sourdough bread. I didn't, I did neither of those things. Instead, I went back to my bucket list and decided now was the time to write a book. And it was interesting, not too long before that decision, I had written a blog post about some topics of decision making. 
And I realized one day that I didn't have to squint too hard at my own bookshelf and the growing list of books on my nightstand to realize that I had been a student of decision-making for a long time and had been a practitioner, obviously, in my professional career and in personal life as well. And so combining those together and realizing that I had enough deep curiosity about this subject to keep it interesting through the writing and the rewriting and the research. And uh, the fact that we're talking today means I'm still not tired of it uh, after all of that. So I guess that's a good indication that it was a good topic to discuss. But I feel like it's one that is so important because there's a myth. There's a myth about decision-making, and that is that it is all about making the choice. That was a really good decision that executive made, or, you know, this decision was a career maker or breaker in the life of a company. And the truth of the matter is, is that all the results come after the decision is made. And decisions, much like how Thomas Edison described genius, is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. And it's only by implementing and all the work streams that come after the choice is made where you can actually, you know, allow the the individual or the business to live up to its potential. So that's really the myth that I was busting in this book is this this over rotation that we do on making the right decision and focusing on how to make that decision right. I love that. You know, I've in any business decision I've been a part of, there are always a few options mm-hmm. and they're all okay, but it is about how it's executed. So I want you to speak a little bit about what you learned in that book about after the decision and after the fork in the road. What is it about after decision-making that makes for a successful decision well executed that has an impact? Yeah. I think first and foremost is recognizing the kind of decision that has been made. I talk about it in the book using language that I learned when I was at Amazon. We use the words one-way door and two-way door decisions. And like the metaphor implies, a one-way door decision is one that after you make that choice, the door locks behind you. If if you don't like what you see, you can't easily go back. Um, These are high stakes decisions, often high investment decisions, ones where you've set the expectations of partners or customers and you, again, can't really go back. But most decisions are not like that. Most decisions are two-way door decisions, maybe much like the turnstile at the department store, um, where you can make a different choice, or you can pivot, or you can adjust. Mm -hmm. And so if you recognize that there are two different types of decisions that you can make, then you don't risk applying a more robust decision-making process to a reversible decision. And you should really challenge yourself when you call something a one-way door decision to think, hmm, how can I install a hinge on this? How can I break it down? How can I pilot it, experiment? How can I do an A-B test? Is there some way that I can make this into a smaller stakes decision? So I think the first thing about successful implementation is actually getting a chance to test implement. And so if you can install a hinge (laughs) to Mm -hmm. the decision, and make it something that you can recover from, then you actually can invest in your learning. And it's the learning that gives you the confidence to go all in and and do more. And then after you're down down that path, it's, it's about communication. It's about candor. It's about uh, investing yourself in the execution of, of the strategy, not just you know, the the formulation of the strategy on, on a book on a shelf. And it's really about building a culture where ideas can get implemented successfully and you have the right talent in the organization, not only to inform the decision with diverse thought and input and and rigor, but maybe even more importantly, after the decision, having the right talent to execute. So that's some of the topics that that I break down in the book. You're a big proponent of writing in your everyday work. And I, I've read about you like memos, you like uh, visioning about the future, writing a story about what the future could look like. I'd like you to talk about how you develop that conviction and how does it help you be a more effective leader? Yeah. 
Well, I would say I have been a longtime proponent of, of writing, uh, especially because I've been in roles where communication has been part of my charter. And so maybe I maybe I come to it, you know, it's kind of a professional hazard <laughs> of, of being in the in the field that I've been in. But I would say this was also very much honed at my time at Amazon. It's a very much a writing and reading culture. If you haven't read much about that, maybe your listeners haven't as well. Um, almost everything starts as a document, either a a conceptual press release, forward dated into the future that predicts the success that will, would come from some investment, or some kind of document that at least gives the who, what, when, where, why of why we would do something. And there is something that happens when you have to write it down and others have to read it and understand it without additional context that makes you think deeply. And it allows you to see around strategic corners. It allows you to anticipate the questions that you're going to get. It allows, it really tests how um, passionate you are about the problem. And in a way that, that, you know, not not to not to uh, judge, but a PowerPoint deck or a quick conversation in the hallway just doesn't do. And so, um, yeah, I'm a big proponent of writing. I probably drive my teams crazy with it because <laughs> I'm like, can have you written a strategy document about this? And uh, I'm sure there's some eye rolling that happens. But again, I went from being optimistic that it was an like an interesting idea to being a raging fan of it. Uh, you know, through my years, uh, having that discipline honed at, at Amazon. And now that I've moved to a different company, I've brought that uh, to the new company. And um, it has helped me 100% evaluate uh, the status of the business. It's helped me create strategic directions for the company. It's helped me create buy-in and alignment across different functions that never would have happened um, had I not taken the time um, to get out the pen and uh, put it to paper. Yeah, I think it's such a powerful point. You know, Amazon, you know, maybe the most modern company on the planet right now is using old-fashioned writing. Procter & Gamble for generations has been a written word company, the famous one-page memo that Mm -hmm. that is just decades old. Every new employee at Procter & Gamble had to take a writing course when they joined, even if they came out of the best universities. And, and it really was a thinking course, not a writing yes. course. Yes. And I think it's powerful on so many levels. You have to clarify your thinking. It helps you get around, look around strategic corners, as you said. It also creates a record of people who went before you. Yeah. And so if you go into a new job at Procter & Gamble, you can see what people have written about the business or the brand for decades, which is hugely interesting. Yeah. And well, and so valuable for context, right? Especially when you're when you're building on such legacy brands and properties like like a PNG. You know, I would also say um, Amazon was the first company I ever attended a new hire orientation. I was in a room with hundreds of people who had started the same day as as I did. And from the stage wasn't just here's how to sign up for benefits or here's our company values. There was literally an ode to the Oxford comma. <laughs> I had never experienced that in my life. And I thought, these might be my people. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I, I think this is one of the things that's probably misunderstood about writing is that people see it as almost like my published book. Here it is. Yeah. But it's actually an invitation to, to buy in. It's an invitation to put your fingerprints on it. It's your invitation to, to edit and provide feedback, make the idea better, and join the work. And technology has made that easier. Yeah. It's the joining the work that makes the idea successful, right? Like, you know, ideas by themselves don't just, you know, uh, generate generate businesses or success or solve customer problems. You have to go do the work. And uh, that, that happens through people who are aligned to, to the cause. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, 
visit cmo.deloitte.com. Well, we should probably talk about Learfield since I think a few of our listeners probably joined to learn about Learfield and your role as CMO there. My guess is that many of my listeners are not aware of your company, but have certainly been exposed to it. And so I'd like you to explain in simple terms the way you might do with your children or your, your friends, what Learfield is, what it does, yeah. what its business model is, because I think it's really, really a most interesting company that does not have the awareness that, you know, a Tide or a Pampers or an Old Spice has. Absolutely. I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head. I, if anybody is a college fan or has done, uh, been a fan of any live performance, uh, performing arts and the like, chances are they've interacted with our company. So Learfield is a media and technology leader in collegiate athletics and live events. And to break that down, we have relationships, uh, exclusive relationships with hundreds of schools and collegiate institutions across the country to um, represent them in sponsorship relationships with brands. So we bring brands to fans and that happens online, on the official athletic websites. It happens in the stadium. It happens in radio broadcast and audio streaming and a whole host of uh, really innovative things. Uh, the pandemic has been a, just a, a renaissance, really, of the company in, in terms of innovation. We're now doing esports leagues at the college level and so many interesting things that, again, connect brands to fans and really create enhanced fan experiences. In addition to that, Learfield um, has some leading uh, brands and providers of ticketing services under our PACUL, and we also are the leading provider of collegiate licensing services under our CLC brand. So if you have any gear from UCLA, Penn State, or Buckeye gear, um, chances are you have done business with or been aware of what we've done, and you haven't even necessarily known it. The company will celebrate its 50th anniversary next year. And uh, I feel like it's day one, because uh, there's so much exciting things going on in in the space. You have been there less than a year, and you left Amazon, which is not a bad place to be, right? So what compelled you to join Learfield from you know, the amazing company you were at at the time? First and foremost, it was the fan, actually. Um, The whole idea that the center of our world are people who are deeply passionate um, about their favorite schools, their favorite teams. Um, And the the idea that in in researching this job, um, that there's outstanding data (laughs) available as to how avid fans are the college sports fan base is larger than the fan base for any professional league in the U.S. And they rate themselves as more of an avid fan than any of the professional leagues. And research shows that fans actually transfer their positive affinity to those that they see sponsoring the schools that they love. Mm-hmm. And we've seen this throughout the decades and the data, you know, comes behind it to support it. The other thing I would say is that even in a deeply personal level, I mean, how many conversations starts like the one that we did? So, you know, t- tell me about yourself and, and I, you know, I'm a Buckeye or it becomes part of people's identity. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and when you, when you um, combine that with the intergenerational and the community element, you know, um, you know, if you're in Ames or Starkville or Athens, you know, there is a there's a community that extends beyond the stadium. And um, there's something really powerful about that, not just not just on game day and tailgating, but every day. And so that's really what attracted me to it. And and frankly, the ability to take what I've learned throughout my career at Amazon and other companies like Honeywell and Intel and, and uh, you know, emerging companies in, in technology spaces that I've worked in and bringing that to a whole new space where I could learn and apply it. That was kind of personally um, attractive to me as well. God, Jennifer, you're making me want to work there. So, you know. <laughs> Well, come on over. It's a great place. 
So you're you're a big fan of this concept called pre-boarding versus onboarding, and I yes. love that thought. And I did a bit of that myself in my career, but I'd like you to talk a bit about what is this concept, pre-boarding versus onboarding, and did you employ it as you transitioned to Learfield? Yeah, I I actually credit it for um, the early success that I've that I've had at at, at Learfield and and how I was able to to ramp quickly. Pre-boarding, for those of you that aren't familiar with the term, is the idea that you don't wait till day one. You don't wait till you're officially on the payroll to start building relationships in the organization. It's actually a concept um, I wish I had invented. I did not. Um, it came from an excellent book called The Leader's uh, Guide to the First 100 Days. I might have gotten that a little wrong, but um, uh, there's an organization who does a fantastic job uh, in in that space and who published that book. And what they challenge, especially executive leaders, and I but I think it's true at multiple levels, is identifying together with the hiring manager and the recruiting team who are the key stakeholders for the role and setting up meetings ahead of your start date. What is wonderful about that is that there's nothing you can do for them. There's nothing you can ask of them. You you have no agenda other than to understand their perspective on the business, your role, how you expect to work together, what is working well, what are some of the challenges. It's it's a great opportunity to listen. And doing that ahead of your start date allows you to hit the ground running with um, kind of an elevator pitch of what you're trying to do that's already been vetted because it's already benefited from the feedback of the organization. and. What that does is that it jumpstarts you creating a strategic imperative and the platform that you're going to use. And for me, I was able to join at the end of March. By the end of July, we had rebranded the company. And there was no way I could have done that had one, the organization not been ready for a change. But in addition to that, we were able to, I was able to marshal alignment and get input into what was working and what wasn't working so that, you know, I could get the juices flowing and processes going, you know, ahead of that. And so it was absolutely critical. And I have, I have, I can see the contrast because I have joined organizations where I didn't do that. I waited till day one to build Mm -hmm. relationships. And I can see now that I started in a hole. And it takes a while to dig out of that. And so do yourself a favor. If you're starting a new job, <laughs> if you're start or even starting a new role that you yeah. haven't yet started, maybe in a you know internal transfer or something like that, take take the time for a little extended transition and do some pre-boarding. It'll make all the difference. It's a such a great concept. I had a few months uh, to think about my role as PNG's chief marketing officer before I took the job. I learned I was going to be in the job in April and it wasn't announced until August, so I had quite a bit of time. So you know what, you know what I did, which was just so profound in terms of learning? I interviewed every ex-CEO of Procter & Gamble who was alive. And I interviewed every ex-CMO of P&G who was alive. And so, and that, those interviews were so amazing on many levels. But I had a tremendous insight into where I could add the most value for the company from those interviews. And, and I shared that on my day one, you know, when it was announced with, with the marketers around the world. So it's a very powerful idea, very powerful thought. Yeah, no, I, I love that. Um, I, I had an opportunity to, to meet with previous leaders of, of our company as well, especially in the, as we were contemplating the, the rebrand, we had come together in a merger at, to be, be Learfield IMG College, which was a bit of a mouthful, a long URL and long email addresses. And so as I was going through that research process, but I can see how powerful it would have been to do that ahead of time. That's great advice. Now tell us about your job. What, what do you do? What's your work? How do you spend time? If we looked at your diary for a month, what insights would we take away from that? Uh, well, according to my um, my kids, I I am <laughs> in meetings and I and I type a lot. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's that. <laughs> Sounds like a very glamorous <laughs> but, job. 
Oh, it's so gla- <laughs> it's so glamorous. Uh, yeah, <laughs> um, I I would say, um, I guess w- what's officially on paper, um, you know, I'm the chief marketing and communications officer, so I have responsibility for internal and external. Uh, communications and and engagement with our core audiences. I lead uh, product marketing and field marketing organizations as well. Um, you know, my job is to to build our our brand, both short term and long term, bring products to market, and really engage with our audiences and ongoing communication. Of course, that's done in close partnership with our product organization, kind of upstream stakeholders. Uh, you know that are owning initiatives and driving innovation. And, um, you know, we partner very closely arm in arm with our revenue and sales and account management organizations to to bring those innovations to market and to listen to customers and clients and partners and bring that back. So it's a highly collaborative role that kind of sits and connects um, the dots there. I think from a from a day-to-day perspective, it's a lot of um relationship building. It's a lot of initiative driving. And ultimately, like roles at any level of the organization, it's about resource and energy allocation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether you're an individual contributor just starting out in your career or you're a CEO of a multinational company, your job is resource allocation. And, you know, I'm blessed to have um, you know, a larger pool of budget and and talent, you know, to apply to to problems of our business. And it's my job to pick wisely and to make sure that people um processes and and the like align to the things that are really going to move the needle for our business long term. And uh again we've talked talked about some of those uh, you know getting the story out about what Learfield is is part of my charter. And that doesn't happen in a day. That is a right you know, a multi-year activity that, that we've undertaken. So you're really a B to B to C kind of company. And you talked about your responsibility is building the brand. How do you, how do you know you're doing that? I mean, how do you measure progress against progress toward building the Learfield brand? Right. Well, there, um, just to clarify, we are a B to B to C brand in in some regards, but we also are a media company. Yeah. So yeah. so we also have B to C offerings mm-hmm. as well, where people can stream games and or they can engage uh, with you know their team in in a whole host of ways. So we we kind of straddle a little bit of both, which is also what makes my job really interesting. Um, but I would say. There are qualitative and quantitative ways. The quantitative ways, I, I certainly don't need to tell, tell you, there's lots of ways that you can measure, you know, brand awareness and preference uh, and affinity. We, we do those things and we like to see the needle move and trend lines go up and to the right um, on all of those kind of quantitative research. But there's also the qualitative. And for me, I feel like the anecdotes can be just as powerful as the data sometimes, because you know you're heading in the right direction. So every school partner who reaches out to us and says, I know we haven't worked together in this way, but do you also do this other thing? Could could we partner on this other thing? Is, is a step in that right direction. Every fan who says, you know, I'm a I'm a fan of Tennessee and I have always been a football fan, but our Esports team is like doing great job, and now I'm an esports fan <laughs> because of my affinity with the Vols. Like that's that's a step in the right direction. And then obviously on the on the consumer side, there's engagement, uh, you know, metrics of how people are consuming with and engaging, you know, with our with our media content. So again, we kind of keep our try to keep our fingers on on the pulse of a lot of different measures, but. Um, I, I really try not to make sh- to make sure it isn't just all about the numbers and a chart and a graph, but it's also about the kind of conversations that we're having, which indicate that people are seeing us as the complete, you know, service provider entity that we are. 
No, it's powerful. You know, the anecdotes are the stories that motivate and inspire us. The, the numbers are, we have to look at that, but it's the anecdotes, I think, that get people out of bed in the morning and want to move the company forward. Yeah. And if the anecdotes and the data ever disagree, experience has taught me to trust the anecdotes. Yeah, right. And then, yeah, and yeah, absolutely. So you rebranded this company in your first quarter in your job, your first three or four months. What did you learn in that process? And why did you rebrand? I should probably start there. Yeah. Well, we had done, um, in the early days, I had gotten some feedback and in my own experience coming into the company, I changed my LinkedIn profile that I was now the CMO of Learfield IMG College. And I can't tell you how many people reached out to me and said, oh, so you've went to work at a college? Are you like a professor now? And I'm like, oh, this name can be kind of confusing. Um, The fact that we provide services to and through colleges, again, was kind of lost in that. Um, Both IMG College, which was the college entity as part of the larger IMG organization, which you might be familiar is a is a huge agent of talent right. and they they're in, in the entertainment space solidly. And Learfield, which had been in this multimedia rights business for a long time, this combination would brought together amazing capabilities, but was was a mouthful. And so I did internal external surveys of our key stakeholders to figure out what they thought about the current name, what uh, you know, additional insights they would have for me of what our brand should be known for, what it is known for, all of that kind of factored into the bubblegum machine, <laughs> uh, you know, to come up with with the answer. And what I learned is that we had very, very high awareness in among several of our key stakeholder groups. They may or may not have known our full capabilities. They might not have had a modern definition of what we brought to the party. But they were in the ballpark, and I can walk somebody to home plate if they're in the ballpark so much faster than if they're on the other side of the highway down the street. And so um, that's the first thing I learned is that there was a lot of brand equity in Learfield, and so that was worthy of some additional attention and investment. Second, I found that there were some of our stakeholder groups that didn't know us, and the fact that we had a very long name. that was confusing um, and included another company's brand, it, it just, it made it difficult for us to tell that story. So we were getting in our own way, so to speak. One of the other things that I learned in this process was that we we had that equity, but there was a, there was room to grow. And so that's really what it came down to is how quickly we could get to market with a new story. And, gen- and again, it was an opportunity to apply the lessons from my book the choice was one thing. We made the choice. Ta-da! We revealed it at a company conference. You know, I was able to roll out a new logo. It was very exciting. But that was the starting line <laughs> yeah. of a lot of work. And that work is ongoing. And so that's really what the focus has been. What do you love most about your role? The people I get to work with. Um, fiercely talented, fiercely loyal. Um, excited about the space and very much approaching the work with heart, um, want to, knowing that they're part of this big legacy, not only at our company, but, you know, uh, our affiliations with these college programs that have been in existence and so meaningful for sometimes hundreds of years. It's, it's a really powerful combination. Um, and the fact that what we're doing to transform the company and to continue to innovate as a company is incredible. We were a, a pioneer 50 years ago in putting college broadcasts on radio. And what we're doing today has that same pioneering spirit, but is, again, changing the landscape of how fans can engage with their favorite teams, not just on those game day broadcasts, but every day. I went on your website getting ready for this, of course, and, and I found your four values, build the team, grow the business, have fun, and love and serve others. And I just love them. They're so simple. What's the most important capability you feel you're building within your marketing team? Mm. It might be there and you're strengthening or it might be a new one for the future. Yeah, I would say the biggest capability that we're building fresh is 
the ability to con- attract and connect and nurture our brand relationships um, at a broader scale. Um, we have always had a very strong um, sales and account management mm-hmm. kind of function in the company. A, a amazing relationships built over decades in some cases um, with with a very, again, this heart for service and a really um, deep understanding of what the client needed and how we can satisfy that. So coming alongside and on top of and around to support that from a marketing perspective is a new capability for the company and one that I'm really excited to be standing up uh, so that we can you know, grow into the future and so that we can um, provide those frontline relationship builders um, every tool to be not only effective but efficient as, as we grow. I'd like you to speak. I mean, I'm a big college sports fan and a big brand person, so I'm looking at this space a lot. And what is the biggest challenge or issue you're working through now with universities and brands? I mean, I I notice some are starting to go into alcohol sponsorship and advertising, CBD and cannabis. So I'm thinking, yeah, this is you know, this is a tough one to make a call on because we are talking about students and and the brand of the university. So is it that or is it something else do you see as the most interesting and challenging issue between brands and universities? Well, certainly category, category um, yeah. opening is, is something that's kind of a perennial topic. Um, we've been around uh, long enough that we saw the opening of beer as a category. Mm-hmm. So we moved from malt beverage now to distilled spirits and as you said in some properties and you know some of the schools it just does not align with their values and we are highly respectful of that and find other ways uh you know to to bring the right brands um that will fit the mission of the school other schools have been very open um this has been a hard couple of years uh on on college athletics, live sure. events in general. Yep. And so there is, I would say, some openness to explore things that p- maybe people haven't in the past, very thoughtfully, very strategically. Um, and, and sometimes after that evaluation, they still say, mm, it's not for us, which is perfectly fine. But we've also seen, um, you know, opening of um, sports betting at the college level as that's become legal in some states. We've, as you said, CBD. We've also seen categories like cryptocurrency mm. opening up. And so again, it's it's this innovation. We w- want to be a partner to our schools, bring all of these opportunities so that we can, again, they can make thoughtful decisions. We don't do anything without the school's involvement and approval. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's very much a partnership uh, with the school to figure out uh, what's the next steps and what's the responsible thing to do. I think when we when we opened up beer, when we're opening up spirits, you know, it's very important to have a very strong responsibility message with that and to make sure that in the targeting of the campaigns that we're not only keeping within the the bounds of um, you know laws and regulations, of course, but also the the mission and values of of the program. So it's a very strong twenty one and over. It's a very strong responsibility message throughout everything. Any insights when we talked about decisions earlier, when you're helping universities make these choices, any insights in how you do that? Is it looking at their history, their values? Is it looking at their student body or alumni? Uh, I mean, how do you, there's a lot of variables in this. How do you help them make that decision? Yeah, but it's a lot of risk mitigation. I think mm-hmm. I think you've, you've hit that on the head. I would say, um, Similar to our decision earlier about, is it a one-way door or a two-way right. door? You know, some people have chosen to do a one-year kind of contract, one-season approach to kind of test something out. It's a little bit more difficult because you do set a precedent. And so, um, you know, uh, often they treat them as one-way door decisions, but that they're going to peel off and learn. They're going to, you know, be in a period of learning. So there's a lot of walk before, you know, crawl, walk, run Mm -hmm. (laughs) kind of approaches that schools take, especially, you know, um, 
public institutions, uh, you know, have to be often conservative in their approach. And so we, we, we work with them on that regard. I would say also they, each school has their own set of constituents to serve and um, who would know best than the school and their administrative staff, who they're likely to hear from in support or who they're likely to hear from in opposition Mm -hmm. and the impact of that uh, to their fundraising or the impact of that to to other programs on campus. And so it's very important to to work closely with the school because they'll have a bigger picture of the larger context of what's happening on that campus um, that, again, would would allow the, the school to make the strategic choice and the timing. Timing is everything. I want to switch to your career path because it's interesting and I want to be sure we we cover this. I just interviewed Bethany Quam, who's the group president at General Mills overseeing their pet business. Mm. She's almost 30 years at General Mills. I was 25 at P&G. You've had a very different career, moving a lot, including to one Beijing-based tech company, and you've worked for some amazing institutions, and one red thread seems to be technology. But I'd like to know, you know, is there another red thread in this career? And what are the pros of moving to several companies? And what do you see as the cons? Well, it's interesting because I've had an opportunity to kind of experience both. Um, started out in a tech startup, uh, moved to a component manufacturer in the electronics space. So on, solidly on the hardware side, moved to Intel into a software of a service. And then I boomeranged back to the, to the hardware manufacturer as we evolved into a digital signage leader and eventually not only acquired some companies, but were acquired. And in total, I stayed at Planar and then Liard for 16, 17 years, mm-hmm. kind of at that stage of my career. And then I um, was feeling restless in the role, if I'm completely honest. I'm, I know many people can feel that. And I had always, when that when I encountered that in the past, I was always always able to grow in place. There was something new we were doing, an acquisition we had made or a strategic project I could lead, something that kept me growing and kept it interesting. Um, but I I kind of felt like I had exhausted some of those options. And so I was ready for a change. And thus the move to Honeywell, which took me to Atlanta and, and uh, was a big change uh, for me and my family. And then to Amazon, where I feel like I kind of got a you know an Amazon MBA um, working there for three years and then now with um, with Learfield, which I intend to stay at you know as long as they'll have me. Um, I would say so. I've I've kind of experienced both staying in place for sixteen years, seventeen years, and moving around in a you know kind of three four year mm-hmm. kind of stints. And um, I would say the past few years of move, more actively moving, um, the, my personal growth rate has increased um, because I've been on the steep end of the learning curve and come to find out I kind of like it there. And that restlessness that I often felt when I got over the hump of that and I had to kind of create my own new learning curve, um, like that's kind of built in to me. Um, and so I, I felt I feel like that's a very good, so I need to be a part of a growing company, one that's actively transforming or doing something different. Um, And so again, I feel like I'm in a really good place because there's years of innovation ahead of us, you know, here at Learfield as we continue to to grow as a company. And so, um, but I would say the thread of technology is absolutely true. The thread of innovation is absolutely true. The thread of um, personal growth and deep mm-hmm. curiosity. I've worked in a number of different industries and some people have said, well, you know what, you probably, I don't know, could have moved further. I don't know what that means in, in your career, if you had stayed in medical devices or if you had stayed in software as a service. But I actually feel like that breadth has made me a better business person, which has always been my goal. Um, I always felt like I wanted to be a better business leader first and 
a marketer or whatever chair I was in, you know, mm-hmm. I've led product strategy and I've been the chief of staff and I've led strategic projects and customer service organizations and the like. But I always felt like that functional chair was second to the hat I wore as a business leader for the company. And so that broader experience, I feel like, has rounded me and has allowed me to take experiences from one areas with one business model into a very different industry. And, and now I'm getting to apply it afresh to a to an industry where we are essentially a service provider. And so I've been able to take my time at AWS learning, you know, software as a service to uh, other times when we've had, I've worked in organizations that had channel partners. Uh, and again, all of that is is part of, you know, what I can bring now. So I would say, you know, it really is about you know, the advice that I have about that is you need to make sure you're growing. You need to make sure you're not inadvertently holding yourself back from the learnings and the experience that you want as a professional. And um, also to be mindful of the chapter in your career you're in. That 16 years, that 17 years that I spent at one company also corresponded to when my kids were little. And um, so I was equally like passionate about work, but I had stuff to do <laughs> that was, a, that was a little different than the chapter I'm in now where I have teenagers and a kid in college. Um, and so it's a different, um, a different chapter and you, you have to give yourself permission, uh, to, to, to live in that chapter and maximize the opportunities, you know, where you're at. And if you feel like that restlessness is, is causing you to look elsewhere, lean into that and, and, you know, Uh, choose a place where the environment will give you what you need. That was a fantastic career path monologue. (laughs) Let's move into the creative brief to close this out. And this is going to be a fun one. Mm -hmm. Do you have another book in you, Jennifer, after this one? You know what? I probably do. Um, I... It's it's almost uh, uh, you know I mentioned my children. It's almost like asking you know somebody holding a newborn, are you ready to have another? Probably not, um, but maybe someday. Uh, yeah. I I really enjoyed the writing and, and research process. So maybe if another topic uh, captures my imagination, you you may see see me on the publisher list again. What brands are super hot on college campuses these days? Food delivery. Yeah, <laughs> I would say. That, that's that been one that, again, I just see uh, very, very prominent. But I would say um, things in the financial services space, especially like moving from just opening a checking account kind of offers to things that are really about financial literacy. I've seen that as a wonderful trend. Um, and many of our sponsors are have been really um, leaders in that space. Because, uh, I again, I feel like you can be a college-educated person and end up making some pretty poor uh, choices with regards to your finances. So it's great to see that emphasis on education. I would also say anything, obviously social media has been a perennial one for, for a long time. Who has been your most profound mentor in your business life? I've had the opportunity to work for a number of really strong leaders. I've worked for five, now six CEOs in my career. One stands out um, as being one that really was probably the first to truly believe in the potential I had to lead at an executive level, Balaji Krishnamurthy. He's um, now serves on boards and is the chairman of an organization called Think Shift, but he is a, he's a thinker. Um, He thinks deeply and is a dreamer and taught me a lot of very valuable lessons about business fundamentals, frankly, about decision-making. He, he is prominently featured in the book because of the impact that he had on me in my own um, decision-making processes. And um, he was, again, one of the first that said, you know, kind of identified me and groomed me for, you know, positions of greater influence and impact. What's been the biggest flop in your career and how did you recover? Um, well, there's there's been several at multiple levels. I would say um, I've had products that have been disappointing. I've had things, uh, businesses that I wanted to invest in that didn't turn out. I've also had career paths uh, and times. Uh, my time at Honeywell was 
was a disappointment to me on a, a number of levels, um, not the least of which I joined a company right about the time <laughs> we announced, um, unbeknownst to anybody on the recruiting team, that we were going to split the company, uh, the division in two and divest half of it. <laughs> so that was like, oh, this is a different job than what I thought I was going to be doing. But so there's been some of those uh, over the years, but I think the key is, and actually this book has been a gift in this regard, is allowed me the time and the excuse, the opportunity to reflect on those and to make sure that I was wringing out all the learnings mm -hmm. from it. And so hopefully you'll see some of those, uh, you know, examples uh, outlined in the book and, and uh, hopefully they can, they can serve as cautionary tales to others. So who would you like to hear in the CMO podcast? Mm. Well, I, uh, I have a friend here in Atlanta that I not only do I like to hear from, but I think he has some wonderful things to say. His name is Jeff Perkins, and he was recently um, appointed the CEO, actually, of a company called Park Mobile, which, as the name implies, provides mobile parking solutions in cities. And uh, he is a longtime CMO colleague friend, peer of mine. I had an opportunity to interview him uh, when I wrote for Forbes, and we had a wonderful conversation about tips for starting in a new CMO role. And uh, he has just published a book called How to Not Suck at Marketing. Well, that's, a good, <laughs> and, that's a good start. Yeah, it's a good start. And um, I, I actually just got my copy last night while, while it was fresh on my mind. I just got my, my copy last night. And as I was starting to read it, it was it was written like I was having a conversation with Jeff and he has a lot to share. So I definitely great, recommend he'd be a idea. good one to talk to. Jennifer, this has been such a great chat. I, I've totally enjoyed it. Uh, and so, so, thanks so much. And let's, let's meet at a university sometime. I think that'd be great fun. Let's do it. That was my conversation with Jennifer Davis. Three takeaways from this amazing conversation to apply in your business and life. The first one is the power of pre-boarding versus onboarding when you are changing jobs or changing roles. Jennifer talked about how she tries to talk to people who will be influential in her new position before she starts the job. So there's no agenda but listening and learning. And that helps her get off to a fast start and to have her agenda as CMO or business leader before she begins her job. Second takeaway the power of writing in your everyday work. When you write, you clarify your thinking, you engage people, you leave a record of your thoughts and decisions for people in the future to study. Amazon leverages writing in a big way. Procter & Gamble has done that for decades. And the third takeaway, this was one of the most amazing discussions about career pathing we have had on this podcast. Jennifer talks about when and why to change jobs, the role of your personal life when you're making career decisions, the self-awareness you need to understand when you are restless and you need a change. So this was a wonderful masterclass on career pathing. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.